Two weeks ago, I introduced you to Leif Braun and Jamin Luoto of NVS Fins, and they explained how using higher quality materials and better tooling has allowed them to design a fin foil with a more refined front edge, which creates less disturbance off the back of the fin, i.e. less drag, and this small detail increases both speed and control for any configuration from single fin to a five fin setup, and being small has actually allowed them other unique opportunities as well, like doing small batches of more innovative designs, one of which led to a big design advancement through a collaboration with Maurice Cole. Uh, actually through Maurice, we got introduced to Troy Clutton who designed the sea drive fins. He's oh. in Australia. And that was a massive project. Uh, that probably took about a year. Yeah. Just because of the shape of the fin, trying to get the foiling perfect, have mm -hmm. smooth transitions was a bit more of a challenge than a mm -hmm. traditional shaped fin. Okay. But it's, take a look at it, you'll see we can do anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it doesn't have to be 150, 200, 300 sets. We can have small shapers come in and say, hey, listen, I've been wanting to do this template for a little while, you know, and they wouldn't even necessarily think to approach any of the other companies. Can you guys do it? Yeah, absolutely. It's yeah. really fun. It's allowed us to really do... Um, some really kind of niche specific small market stuff that then has actually you know appealed to enough people that it, it'll take off a little bit yeah. and we'll start to really put it into to solid production if you haven't already seen the c drive fin they are thusly named for the c shape of the template and the fact that they generate more drive than any other fin design the base is really wide like a keel fin but it's as tall as a thruster with this huge cutaway between the wide base and the narrow and refined tip. Again, it creates a distinct C shape in the template. So you get this crazy drive from the base of the fin and then the large cutaway of material and the narrow tip allows for more maneuverability. It's best suited for intermediate to advanced surfers. You should definitely check these out just to look at them if nothing else. They're available in the NVS Apex Construction which, as we stated last time, is made from a G10 fiberglass baked in an autoclave, which allows for less epoxy resin. So you get the decreased weight, the thinner foil, and more structural integrity. Our promo code, PODCAST, gets you 20% off any order of Apex fins. Leif and Jamin will be back at the end of the show to talk about how they are reducing their manufacturing carbon footprint. But until then, check out surfnvs.com and use the promo code podcast to save 20% off what is already a bargain price and you will also support this show. Thanks for doing that. Welcome back to part two of my conversation with Dick Metz. This conversation was recorded on three days over the course of a couple of months. I'm releasing it in three parts. Please listen to part one before proceeding with today's episode. I think it'll give you a much better context for understanding Dick and who he is and the role that he plays in the surf world. If you already listened to that, though, you will recall that Dick tells us about growing up in Laguna, about being childhood friends with Shirley Temple about being adult friends with Duke Kahanamoku and being the very first employee at Clark Foam. He talks about opening the very first Hobie surfboard shop in Honolulu. 
And today he begins with telling us how and why he embarked on a three-year surf trip around the world that would later become the blueprint for the endless summer. Today's episode includes intrigue, romance, bankruptcy, a life-changing business deal with Disney, rhino chases, jail time, and one lucky hitchhike that would alter the course of surf history. And that's no joke. It would be really curious to hear what would have happened if Dick had elected out of a car at this particular point in his journey. At any rate, all of this is made possible with the support of Slow Tide. And I've been singing their praises for about a year now. They make high-quality, plush, luxurious towels, beach towels, changing ponchos, yoga towels, bath towels. And they're actually just launching a limited edition Shaper Series collaboration with 12 different shapers, many of whom you've heard me interview here on the podcast, including Paisel, Channel Islands. I interviewed Britt Merrick from Channel Islands. You should check that out if you haven't. Um, They're doing a collaboration with JS, DHD, Eric Arakawa, Bing, Mayhem, and more. These are their 100% recycled travel towels, which pack super compactly. They are fast drying. They absorb four times their weight in water. And this is the only towel that I travel with. It's also perfect for holiday gifts. So slowtide.co is their website, not .com, slowtide.co. And our promo code is the word podcast. It gets you 10% off your entire purchase and it supports our work here on the show. You get free shipping at $75 and always get free returns. Slowtide.co, promo code podcast. Thank you for that. And when we last left Dick Metz on part one, he had outlined his backstory for this three-year sojourn and his career with Hobie Surf Shop once he got home from that trip. So today we're going to begin by embarking on that journey and how it would go on to inspire his good friend, filmmaker Bruce Brown, to create his opus, The Endless Summer. Without further ado, I'm David Scales for Surf Splendor, and here's the second part of my three-part series with Dick Metz. Enjoy. Uh, Bruce, of course, was a real good friend of mine. He was 10 years younger than I am. I met him uh, right out of high school. When he was out of high school, I was already long out of college. And he was in the Navy. I moved to Hawaii to surf and uh, was on the North Well, we didn't surf so much in the North Shore early on. We didn't have the boards that would do it. So we were at Makaha. uh, That's where we all lived in Waianae. And um, Bruce was in the Navy and got off on the weekends and came out and just wanted to see who was doing what. So I knew Bruce from an early age, and we just stayed friends. But it really wasn't until after I was on my long trip that I went to these other places and came back and then told Bruce. By then, he had made a couple movies, Waterlogged and I forgot, Slippery and Wet or whatever his first two movies were. Really, they were local movies. Uh, when I say local, Southern California and Hawaii and maybe a little bit of Mexico. And that's as far as we ever kind of went yeah. until I went on my three-year odyssey. So on that trip... Well, what inspired the three-year odyssey? Well, that the whole nother story. <laughs> uh, 
So, um, well, I guess I have to back up and make it plain. So I went to high school in Laguna Beach, uh, went away to college. I went to three or four, let's say five colleges. I got kicked out of a couple of them. I was surfing all the time. It was all about, I wanted to go surfing, so I went to Santa Barbara, which was the University of California at Santa Barbara. But because they had good surf and it was close to Laguna and all that, <clears throat> so I went there, and in Santa Barbara, there's only three surfboards in the whole town. This is in 1949 or 50, and uh, we'd go to Rincon, and it was... You know, you're out there by yourself, and you'd always call the other two guys in town that had the surfboards. I'm going down to Rincon today. Why don't you come with me? You didn't want to be alone. And uh, that is so amazing. <clears throat> so, and then in those days, because surfboards were big and heavy, and and they didn't work obviously as near as well as they do now. Um, I had a surfboard, but other guys wanted to kind of learn and get into it. They didn't have the money to go get a surfboard. They cost $40 then. Wow. Uh, so I would take friends, and I lived with a guy named Billy Ming and um, in Santa Barbara, so he would go with me, and then we would flip to see who goes in the water first because the other guy had to build a fire. We had no wetsuits. It's colder than hell, and so you'd only surf for 20 minutes. Oh, wow. And uh, then you'd want to come in and stand by the fire, and so Ming would uh, build a fire and get it going, and I'd watch the fire, and I'd be out there shivering in, in November at Rincon, and, you know, the, I don't know, the water's 58 or something. Yeah. And, and uh, so we'd come in, and then he'd go out for 15 minutes, and I'd keep the fire stoked, and that's the way it was. Anyway, I went to school. <clears throat> After school, I went in the service during the Korean War. I was went to Navy OCS. Uh, I had a car wreck. I, the Navy discharged me because of a broken back and uh, ribs and pelvis that I injured. So I was only in the Navy about 10 days, hmm. uh, and they uh, uh, discharged me, medical discharge. And then the Army drafted me because they had lower standards than the Navy. And so the Korean War, they're drafting people, and they take you up to L.A., give you a physical, and send you to Fort Ord, uh, which they did with me. But because I was a college graduate, then they sent you to other little side schools to learn more specific things. Uh, then they did that with me. And so I learned uh, during basic training that when you were in the military for seven, over six months, that you could then apply for the GI Bill. And that was a big deal in those days. It paid you to go to school. They gave you uh, checks uh, for working or not working after school. So once I was in the Army, seven months, I complained about my back. I complained about it early, but they didn't pay attention. So once I had been in and gone through all the training and done a bunch of other stuff, specialized stuff, I kept complaining about my back, and eventually the Army gave me a medical discharge too before the two-year term that I was supposed was drafted for. So I got out in seven months and five days. So now I got the GI Bill. So then I went back to college, went to graduate school in Mexico City and in Honolulu. So I went to Hawaii and went to U of H and surfed every day. And I wasn't ever trying to learn anything. I didn't have any idea about learning specific things and getting a degree and being an engineer or a teacher or whatever it was. I just went to school because uh, there was a lot of chicks and we had parties and I was trying to get laid and go surfing. That's what it was Makes all sense. about. So uh, all of that being said, finally, my dad, who 
uh, lived in Laguna when I grew up there, had restaurants and a couple of bars in Laguna, and he ended up with a liquor store in Huntington Beach. And that's how I ended up in Huntington Beach. He said, now you've had seven years of college, you've got three BAs and a master's, and not that it's ever going to be any good, but I think you ought to put it to work. So he twisted my arm and had me go up and run the liquor store. Well, I was still in my surfing mode, and at 9 o'clock I had a gal. I would open the store at 8. She came to work at 9, and I figured, well, once she was there, I could go surf the rest of the day. So I'd walk across the street. It was right on 5th and Coast Highway, right across the street from the pier, and I would go surf, and that's where different kids would, you know, the local... uh, Local guys, lifeguards, I'd surf with them. There were just a few that were surfing then, too. It was still 1955 or four or so in there. And um, the kids used to go in. Once they'd see me out by the second tee, would then go in the liquor store and steal booze. Uh, And that's how that surfboard out there depicts the story. They gave me the surfboard. 40 years afterwards, and they felt a little guilty stealing uh, liquor from me, and they brought me that new surfboard with that picture on it. Those exact kids? Yeah, same that kids. That is amazing. So they came to I've the... I've seen that board over the years, and I had no idea that's who it came from. <laughs> well, what happened is they were all high school kids underage, and so... Then I didn't see him for years. I went away to Africa, moved to Hawaii, and I didn't even, we had a party here at the museum for retired lifeguards from Laguna, where I was a lifeguard, Huntington Beach and Newport. And a lot of guys I knew but hadn't seen for years, because now they were 50, 60 years old. Mm -hmm. And two of them came with a surfboard all wrapped up, and I said, what's that? And they said, well, we'll show you once we get inside. So... We had drinks and poo-poos, and everybody was laughing and talking about old times lifeguarding in the 50s and 40s, where I was lifeguarding. And uh, these guys brought the board and said, we were the ones that stole all that booze from you, and we felt a little guilty, so we wanted to give you this surfboard and pay you back for all the liquor we stole. Amazing. So that's how that started. So I was in this liquor store and surfing every day, and it went broke. Or was going broke, and I'd go to with a girlfriend. We'd go to Tijuana. The bullfights were going skiing, and I just wasn't there. I got robbed and stuck up, and finally my dad's on my case. He said, "You know, you're losing money. Uh, you got to make this thing work." So I finally came to my senses to some degree, and fired everybody. Moved in the liquor store. Had an army cot in the back, and brought another cot for my girlfriend. So we were both living in the back of the liquor store. And then I would run it all day long from 7 in the morning to 11 at night. I never left. Ate three meals a day in the liquor store out of the deli box of bologna sandwiches, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And then she would go off and go home part of the time, which I didn't blame her because it was yeah. pretty. So in the meantime, I'm reading every day in the liquor store. It's slow in the wintertime. Argosy and True Magazine. Two magazines, men's adventure, fictional magazines, but based on some kind of historic books or something they had read. And there would be a picture on the cover of True, Bare-Breasted Maidens of Tahiti, Surfing Nymphs of Bora Bora, Mm -hmm. you know, titles like that that got my attention. And so I start reading all these things, and God, I'm looking at it, and I thought, i got to go to these places. And I was dying in this liquor store. I couldn't surf. I I was there uh, seven days a week. 
So I heard that Disneyland was just being built then, in 1958, I think it was, 56 maybe, seven, I've forgotten what year. And in those days, they needed a liquor license. So <clears throat> I put, told the liquor salesman that the liquor license was for sale, and it was called, the store was called Surf Liquors. So I said, Surf Liquors is for sale. So these guys move around in the county, and you could only have liquor licenses proportionate to the population. In those days, I don't know how it is now. But anyway, Disneyland came to see me because they had to have a liquor license. And so in those days, I had, had stiffed a bunch of the merchandise guys, the young brothers and the different wholesalers I was buying from, and they were all bummed out at me. Yeah. And the bank had a mortgage on the store, and my dad in the bank was bummed out. So I sold the liquor license, paid off all the bills, paid off the bank loan, and it left $2,000 after all everything was paid for. And I'd been doing this for eight months in the liquor store, never paid myself. So I kept the $2,000, sold my car and a couple other things, and I had $2,200. And I said, I'm out of here. I'm going to these places that I'd read about in True and Argosy. Wow. So I <clears throat> had you know, looked at maps, and I had decided there was five places that I absolutely wanted to see. Tahiti, and there was no, see, in those days, there's no airplanes to Tahiti or any or most other places. Um, so you couldn't fly there. There was no ships going there. The only way to go to Tahiti was on a sailboat out of Newport or L.A., some rich guy that was going to, you know, had a sailboat and was going to sail down there. Wow. And so... I figured, how could I get there? So I'm reading all these magazines, and uh, the French, the French government, uh, was fighting the Indochina War, the French-Indochina War in Vietnam. This was 20 years before we went to Vietnam. So they're bringing French foreign legionnaires from Marseille, France, across the Atlantic, through the Panama Canal, and Tahiti was a French possession. The ships, the troop ships, would stop in Tahiti and replenish water and supplies and then go on to Vietnam where these troops were fighting a war. Okay. So I had learned through one of these magazine articles that if you got to Panama, the chances were that you could buy a ticket on a French Army troop ship from Panama to Tahiti. Now, this was just a suggestion. There was no <laughs> assurance, and you couldn't pick up the phone and phone somebody. Of course. So I decided to hitchhike. I'd been tending bar at the Sandpiper in Laguna and lived in the apartments right behind that on Brook Street, surfing Brook Street every day. So I packed a rucksack. I had $2,200 that I've got an American Express traveler's check, started hitchhiking in front of the Sandpiper through California down to Tijuana, through Mexico, and I'd already been to school in Mexico. I went to graduate school, Mexico City, so I knew my way around Mexico, and I spoke Spanish well enough to get by. So I'd seen Mexico. I'd surfed all up and down both coasts because uh, I went to school there for over a year, and I just went through there. I'd been to Guatemala, so I just hitchhiked as fast as I could through Nicaragua and <clears throat> Salvador and eventually get to Panama, and when I got there, I went to the uh, Panamanian uh, or the French embassy, and I 
told the French guy that I heard there was troop steps. He said, well, that's true. And I said, can you buy a ticket? And he said, well, you can buy a ticket. You're just buying your food, but you have to live in a hammock with the French foreign legionnaires. You're not buying a cabin on a cruise ship. You're in the hold of the ship. You can't even come on deck, and you're just sleeping in a hammock. And what you're buying for $68 was uh, a cabbage, uh, boiled potatoes, wine, bread, uh, and they fed you three meals a day with the troops, and uh, and you were confined there for how long? For well, I said, "What's the trip?" He said, 17 days." So I said, "Well, that's I'm going to Tahiti one way wow. or another." So I paid him sixty-eight dollars, and the next time, and it was about three weeks. They told me a ship would be coming through, coming from okay. Marseille. And the embassy took me right on. They were going through the locks, and I just got on board when it was going through the locks. Wow. And 17 days later, I ended up in Papiete. Holy cow. I hate to stop your roll, but real quickly, how old were you when you started this journey? Well, that was 1958, so I was 40. I was like 30 years old, 31. Okay. And how long was your... Um, hitchhiking trip from Laguna down to Panama. How, how long did that take? You know, I don't remember exactly, but it wasn't very long because I knew my way around and I went as fast as I could. I didn't want to go to any of the beaches and check things out. I'm guessing three weeks. Okay. Something like that. And were you traveling with a surfboard? No. Okay. It was too hard to travel with a surfboard. I would surfboard. imagine, especially hitchhiking. Yeah. You know, you can't get a car ride or anything. And I, I agonized over that, but I thought... I can make surfboards there. I mean, that's what I did before. I made surfboards. And I knew how to do that. But I was naive in thinking that because they didn't have fiberglass and balsa right. wood and having all that stuff. Yeah. But I just figured, uh, so backing up, not your question, but I did say there was five things. So my five targets were Tahiti, uh, number one, I wanted to go to Australia because I knew there was surf there. We had heard about Australia, and they were trying to learn to surf there. So I wanted to go to Australia and surf. I wanted to go to Africa and see wild animals, elephants and rhinoceros and all the African stuff. I wanted to see different cultures. I wanted to see Africans with weird earlobes mm -hmm. and tattoos and all the stuff they did uh and i want so i wanted to go to africa australia tahiti i wanted to go to the olympic games in rome i ran track in college and had scholarships to a lot of colleges and i almost went to the olympic games and the coach that gave me scholarships was the olympic coach and i'll think of his name in a minute from san jose uh god i almost said it then uh but anyway he was so he was taking the whole team to to Rome, and I thought, well, if I go there, there wasn't the security and all that stuff in those days that he would get me in the Olympics. And then the fifth place I wanted to go was run with the bulls in Pamplona, Spain. And the rest of it was all kind of gray area. So anyway, I, 17 days later, I got to Papietti. Um, we got there at 6 in the morning and tied up right at the city, uh, right in the key where sailboats were there and just other local boats. And uh, so they were the, gonna, the ship I was on, the freighter, was only going to be there like 24 hours to get water and supplies. And they wouldn't even let the uh, troops off the ship because uh, they would get all drunk and wouldn't <laughs> make the ship back. So uh, I got off because I had a visa. The, before I left and reading all these magazines, 
it said, okay, you want to have your visas to wherever you're going to go. In those days, you had to have visas to everywhere. And you had to have shots in order to get a visa. So six months before I left, I'd been patching surfboards with Hobie for years. And so Hobie and I were really good friends. And he had, at that same time, Grubby Clark was also working for Hobie. And Grubby was a couple years younger than I was. And he was going to Pomona College. He'd worked, uh, he was learning to be an engineer but he was working in the summertime for Hobie so Hobie was already made the foam uh, 1958 but and I hope I had talked about that earlier but we can come back you did did. Uh, so Hobie had given the foam thing to Grubby and Grubby we had a secret we call it the skunk works in Laguna Canyon and nobody knew about it except Hobie me and Grubby and maybe there's one or two others. So they <clears throat> took Grubby said, well, you got to come with me and come down and help make blanks because I'd been working yep. with Hobie on that. But at the same time, I could get away and go to L.A. and get shots. So to get the shots, you had to go to the health clinic in downtown L.A., and you had to set an appointment because it was way more... You know, everything was more complex then, and that's what I'm trying to point out, that life in general was more complex. It wasn't like it is today. You you know, get on your phone and set up an appointment, do this and that. So you had to phone, get an appointment, and so yellow fever. They only give yellow fever shots at 10 o'clock in the morning on Wednesday, for example. Bubonic plague was 2 in the afternoon on Thursdays. So you had to make all these appointments. I'd drive to L.A. and then come home with my arms all sore, from these but you couldn't have them all at once so it took about four or five months while i was working for clark foam and it wasn't even clark foam then it was hobie foam uh to get all these shots other guys that i was surfing with all my best friends in laguna we were all living together and you know a jungle house and oh yeah we'll go with you well as soon as i had to start taking the shots i said we got shots on next Wednesday for yellow fever. Well, I can't go. I got to do this. <laughs> so it was obvious to me that nobody was getting their shots, so they couldn't get a visa, so they aren't going to go with me. That was the original. There was about 10 guys that all wanted to go. And then they said, well, we won't start with you, but we'll meet you in here and there. Yeah. And, of course, nobody ever did. Right. <clears throat> it was obvious to me that they weren't. So I was motivated to do it. So I get the shots. I get the visas. And so I didn't know where I was going to go. So I had visas all over. I had visas to India and Indonesia and, you know, China and wherever it was because I had no idea how I was going to get to these five places. So once I got to Tahiti, I got off the ship, had a... So then I got to talk about Peanuts Larson for a minute. And he, um, he had left Laguna. Peanuts was older than I was. Peanuts and Hevs were the two older surfers in Laguna that had kind of raised me. And maybe I'd talked to you earlier about that. And so Peanuts was a kind of a half crazy guy. And he wanted to go to the South Seas. So he told Francis, the girl he was living with, his high school girlfriend, they were living together. And she was a waitress at the Crab Catcher in Newport. And he didn't work at all. And he said, I'm going to go get a loaf of bread today. I'm going to go shop. And uh, she had gone to work. Well, he went to Newport, and he'd already arranged it and got on a sailboat uh, with a guy named Herb Elke that also I went to high school with in Laguna, older guys ahead of me. And they had arranged to get on a sailboat in Newport and sail to Tahiti in the South Seas. 
And we didn't we didn't know about that. They were going to go someplace, but we didn't know where. And this was six months before I left. Okay. And so it was just a mystery. They had disappeared. And, you know, in those days, to write a postcard uh, from Tahiti, you know, you never knew when it might come home. So, yeah. so there was no mail, and, of course, there was no Internet or any of that other stuff. So they just disappeared. We didn't know where they were. <clears throat> but we thought they had gone on a boat to the South Seas. So Hevs had uh, told, uh, he had written a card to General Delivery, Papietti, thinking that Peanuts might be there, and said, Metz is on his way. And But he didn't know, and I didn't know how I was going to get there, because I, I left, and Hevs knew I was going to go to Panama, but we didn't know if there was a ship coming. It, it was, everything was unknown so i get there to panama i spent i think about three weeks in panama i lived in a whorehouse and those are the best places to live because they always have extra rooms and you could get those cheaper than staying in a hotel okay and it didn't even you had you were sleeping with all the girls but you had that option yeah <laughs> but it was more fun just being around where things was happening instead of paying in those days a hotel room was probably 30 or 40 bucks wow. but when you only have 2200 you know you're not staying in a hotel at least i wasn't so <clears throat> anyway i just stayed there till the ship came in got on that went to tahiti signed off and so here we dock at six in the morning sun's just coming up and peanuts and there's other uh, podcasts that we did i think i told you that he talked like he was an airline pilot, and he would do the seal call. So when he would see on the street or at the beach and say, hey, Dick, how you doing? He'd go, oh, oh, oh. Mm -hmm. And so we're tying up in Papietti, and it's boat day. There's hundreds of people there, girls and guys, and just the local citizenry seeing a boat come. It was a big deal because boats didn't go there, and there's no airport. So in this crowd, the lines are going down, and I hear, and I'm looking around because I had to be peanuts and standing on a 55-gallon oil drum against a warehouse, I see him over there. And I couldn't believe it. I'm waving and shouting. And he sees me because he didn't know I was on that ship. There's no way he could have known. But Hevs told him I was on my way. So I think he came, every time a ship came in, he'd probably come by. So <clears throat> he knows I have a picture uh, it's in the book uh, with peanuts after his pe uh, seal call he grabs the mayor of Papietti and the police chief because they're setting up a table at the bottom of the gangplank uh, to uh, well you know anybody that's coming off well I was the only one that was coming off because the rest of them are going troops and so I had the visa and they had to set up and stamp my visa and check that all out so they're setting up a table and all of a sudden i hear on the microphone in broken english french accent monsieur metz monsieur metz uh down the gangplank you're the f only one coming off now there was officers that were going to go off and buy food and water and organize stuff so other guys were coming and going but i was the only passenger and so peanuts is sitting at the table with the police chief and the, the uh, mayor and and I give them my passport, and they stamp my visa, and uh, Peanut says, come on, I'll get you. So Quinn's Bar, the most famous bar in the South Seas, is right there on the quay at the harbor. Well, there's no harbor. It's just a big dock. And uh, 
So he said, "We got to, you got to go to Quinn's. And so we go into Quinn's, and it's 6 in the morning, and the girls are dancing, they're topless, and this is, God, this is how my mind, I had envisioned everything. So we're at, having beers, and, you know, Quinn's is great, and I got a little rucksack is all I had. And he said, you got to come over, I'll get you a room at the Stewart Hotel. And, you know, it's like five bucks a night or something. So we go over there, and I check in the room, and... Uh, you know, we go back to Quinn's, leave my rucksack there. So we spent the day in Quinn's, and I don't know how much detail you want me to go talk about the trip in general, because I can talk details about Tahiti and all these things, you know, for we've, hours. We've got two hours to cover all of it. So Okay, well, I, I will tell this one story, because it was, it, it's about the culture, and this is what, you know, you grow up in America, and the way I grew up, my mom was a school teacher, my dad had a restaurant and a little bar in Laguna, and, you know, I was brought up under the culture, the terms, the way our lifestyle was there, and it certainly, in those days, sex was a non-event in high school. There was no sex, because there was, there was no pill, obviously. Right. Uh, girls were afraid to get pregnant in high yeah. school and there just wasn't happening as much as the guys were trying it sure. wasn't going to happen so all of a sudden you're in a whole different environment and you know you you never I didn't have any sisters so to see a girl with her top off was like a, a big deal totally and they're all dancing in the, in the uh, Quinn's bar with their tops off and I'm thinking god is this bitching or what you know so <clears throat> we're in there most of the day and so you know you're up dancing with them and everything uh and one of the there's a lot of things i could tell but i, I won't bore you with all the details but <clears throat> so i end up going home with one of these girls <clears throat> excuse me and taking her down to Stewart hotel which is only 100 yards and so about 10 at night we're walking down there and in the shallow water where the little sailboats were there was no beach there was a a few little uh, docks, but the bigger sailboats, and there were three or four of those, but the little, you know, 10-foot sailboats could sail right up, and it was only waist-deep in the water. And there was three or four Tahitians with a candle in a little lamp in their left hand, and they would be waist-deep in the water, and in the right hand they had a spear, and the candle light would draw the fish to that light, and they were, we were talking about little fish that are four or five inches long, okay. really bright colored fish. I don't know what they were. They were really pretty, but it would be like skin diving and see all these exotic little fish there. So he would stand there waist deep, and he, I noticed he had a bunch of newspaper tucked in his shorts in, in his back. And so the girl's tugging my arm, and you know I couldn't speak Tahitian. She couldn't speak English. She's pointing to these guys out there, and I'm going, yeah, I just wanted to get her home. And uh, so she yells at one of these guys, and she said, give me a shilling, or no, it was be a franc. Uh, and so, you know, it was cheap money, and so I gave her, you know, it was probably a nickel or something, and she had this guy spear a fish. We watched him spear the fish, and it was just a little small yellow fish, and he pulled out the newspaper they had in the back of his shorts, wrapped it in the newspaper, 
she paid him, and away we went. She was all excited, and she's laughing and everything. So we get to the hotel, and the uh, the Michelle, the guy that ran the hotel. I mean, it's not like you know here you couldn't take a girl up to your room in a ho- American hotel in those days. You have to sign in, and they got to know okay. all this stuff. But there, hey, no, and she knows the hotel. Sure, man. she'd been going there with other guys. I'm sure for months. Who knows? And so he waves at her, and away we go. <clears throat> so in the room, there's one bed. <clears throat> there's not a bathroom, but there is a sink where you could brush your teeth and wash your hands. And the toilet and the shower was down at the end of the hall. You shared with all the other rooms. So, you know, this is the American mentality at the time. So I go in there, and she just takes off. She was topless anyway. She just takes off her little skirt and throws it on the chair and jumps in bed naked and it's hot so you don't pull covers over here or anything and she puts the pillows up and she's sitting up in bed uh you know against the pillows and so my first thing is you know i've got your little kit there i'm going to brush my teeth and so i go to the little sink and it's got a little medicine cabinet a little mirror in it and i get my toothbrush out and i'm brushing my teeth but i'm looking in the mirror and looking at her because i'm you know stoked about all this stuff so we'd i'd been eating i'd been in there all night all day long drinking beers and i thought well i gotta brush my teeth so i'm brushing my teeth looking at her and she unwraps this fish and so she's naked sitting up there with the pillows and her boobs are out there and she just sucks on the eye of this fish and pulls the eyeball right out of the fish and it's got a cord about six inches long comes down her chin and with that some kind of liquid and it wasn't really blood and some other guts and stuff out of the head of the fish and it comes down on her chest and on her boobs and I'm watching this, I'm brushing my teeth, and I'm kind of slowing down, brushing, <laughs> just watching this whole movie go on. And pretty, she's just excited. She's really happy that I bought her this fish. She turns it over, sucks the other eye out, and she's gnawing on this fish. And all the fish scales and the guts and everything Viscera. are on her mouth and her chin. And it comes down on all over her chest and all these guts and stuff. She eats half the damn fish. And I finally give up brushing my teeth. And I, there was a little kind of a washcloth. It was more of a rag. And I get it wet. <clears throat> I go over and take the fish away from her. And I was washing her. I didn't want to kiss her yeah, with all course. the fish guts on her. So I'm washing her mouth and her chest. And you know, say her boobs have got all the fish guts on them. And so I'm all stoked. At least I'm getting to, to her half naked. And so I'm washing her off and getting her all primed up. So finally I put the rag away and turn off the lights and get in bed. But it was just so, it was my first experience of total different cultures. And it was your first <clears> night off the ship. It was my first oh night my off the gosh. ship. And it was just, God, this is amazing. And I was just excited to be in a different world and to see what I had come to see. I wasn't disappointed in any way, shape, or form. And so that was my first experience. And I had a lot more in TD. I stayed there for four months and got to know a lot of the Tahitian girls. I bought a French motorcycle and went all through the different islands, put the motorcycle on little inner island ship and went to uh, Raiatea, Huahini, Bora Bora and rode around. And so I saw everything in Tahiti that I could see, took pictures, 
drank a lot with all the French girls and the Tijan girls. Had a great time. Did you try to <clears throat> earn any money while you were there? No. Okay. <clears throat> no was, was Peanuts earning any money while he was no, there? No, and he he and I lived together there, and you know there was no jobs to be had okay. as far as I could tell. We couldn't speak the language, and so we were just having fun. <clears throat> peanuts, um, there was no airplanes, as I said, or no ships. But there was an airplane, a seaplane, that came from Samoa and flew the mail into Tahiti that I didn't know about. <clears throat> so you could get on that plane and fly to Samoa, but Samoa was like Tahiti. There was no ships there either, mm-hmm. and so that wasn't. But apparently you could have gone to Samoa. That was Apia. Uh, Do you want to go check no. that or turn it off? No. Perfect. Carry on. <laughs> So Peanuts went off to Samoa, and I, there was one other American there, a guy named Dave Topper, and he uh, graduated from Beverly Hills High School. His folks had a lot of money, and the ship that did come through Tahiti occasionally was the Mariposa. You could take it from L.A. to Honolulu, and then it would take a cruise through the South Seas in like twice a year. Well, his folks bought him a ticket on that cruise ship. He got off in Tahiti, and the ship went away, and he had no way of getting off. And he was really, he wasn't a beach guy, and he had been there, you know, a couple of weeks before I got there, and he was desperate to get away. So what we did learn and know that if you got to Australia, then he could fly home because there were flights from L.A. to Honolulu, then to Australia. But he couldn't get to Australia. So after we, I'd been there for three or four months, and he was still there, and I got to know him. And You know, he was American from Beverly Hills, so we had a lot in common in that sense, but not a beach guy. And I would go surf and dive, but there was no surfboards. I just body surf on different beaches on different islands. And there were waves, there were good waves, but, uh, you know, we were just body surfing, basically. Mm-hmm. I did have a belly board. A guy had a kind of a belly board and I reshaped it and kind of surfed on that so all that was fun so one day we're sitting at the bar Lea, which is another bar right next to Quinn's which is right on the dock and another a trance steamer came in a Norwegian trance steamer that in those days they would cruise all these different islands and pick up different cargo and copra or coconut uh, the, the remains of a coconut would be used for making soap so they would go to these different islands and buy copra and fill up the ship with that and other items that they could buy. And then they would deliver stuff, too. So, um, you know, they would go to L.A. and offload the copra, and maybe they'd take a deck load of lumber or something that they didn't have. So this ship came to Papietti one day just out of the blue. Nobody knew it was tied up there. The name of it was the Thorshall. It was the biggest uh, steamship company in Norway. <clears throat> and um, they had a, a deck load, a fire engine on the deck. They were delivering that to another South Sea island. And they had other stuff that they were offloading and taking on stuff. So it was there for like two days. And so Topper uh, went over to the 
gangplank, and the, one of the mates would be at the bottom of the gangplank, you know, answering questions or getting food and stuff. They would restock. And he went over, and, try, and we were sitting right there. It's 50 feet away. And we were all having beers, peanuts, and I and a couple other guys and went up and talked to the, the first mate at the gangplank and said, I want to buy a ticket to... Uh, wherever you're going are you going to australia he says yeah we are going to australia but we're going to different islands first picking up cargo but we don't take passengers and we don't sell tickets and so topper came back and he was all dejected and he's sitting there and i watched this whole scene and i knew him he was like you know i was i grew up on the beach where you're kind of scamming stuff and this was during the depression i mean i grew up during the depression it wasn't the depression then but it was coke bottles two cents and how you could make a little bit of money i mean my mom was a teacher my dad was struggling on a 24-hour hamburger stand basically and it was tough going so you know you just learn how to get by so i watched topper screw it up so i, I said to him when he came back i said i'll bet you a hundred dollars i can get on that ship and he said well there's no way i just got kicked off i said I'll give me uh, if you'll give me the hundred dollars up front I'll pay you back because all I had was cashier's check and I didn't have hundred dollar bills <clears throat> give me the hundred and he had the cash because he had a whole bunch of money and money in those days probably had a thousand bucks or something so <clears throat> he gave me the thousand a hundred dollar bill I went to the Stewart Hotel which was right next door got my rucksack got my passport and my visa for Australia because I had visas for everywhere and so I went to the first mate I put the hundred dollar bill in the passport where I had the Australian visa and I went over to him and I said I know you don't take passengers but I want to be a work away I'm a great worker you can depend on me and I opened I have a visa for Australia I opened up with a hundred dollar bill and I figured I was going to bribe him to get me on as a worker because I had read in these books that they'll take extra crew on board to chip paint and work on the ship during the day they got to maintain the ship so I opened it up and I said, here's my visa and the $100 bill. I said, this is for you. And he looked at it and looked at me and he said, you really want to go, don't you? And I said, damn right. So I'm ready to go right now. And he said, well, put that $100 bill in your pocket. And he said, we're leaving at 4. And by then it was like noon. He said, stow your gear and uh, we're going to be leaving at 4. And I said, well, I've got a friend that's really a good worker too. Could you use another hand? And he said, well, maybe so. So I went back to Topper, and I said, I'm on board, and I'll bet you another 100 I can get you. And so he said, oh, well, no way. So I got 200 bucks out of him <clears throat> and got him a job. We got on the ship and left at four. So that's how I got from Tahiti through the South Seas. We went to Apia, Pango Pango, Samoa, New Hebrides, New Caledonia, uh, you know, all through the South Seas, and eventually got to... Um, what was the seaport? It wasn't Sydney or Melbourne. It was a little seaport. Uh, I'll think of that in a minute, too. But in northern Australia, where they were offloading the Copra. So <clears throat> I worked on the ship, as Topper did. But, you know, I was just wiser, and I got on the first mate's watch. The first mate, 
is the first, the second guy in command under the captain. Then there's the second and the third mate. And three mates stand to watch. So your watches are four hours on and eight hours off. So the first mate has the best watch. It's four in the morning till eight in the morning. He's off then all day long, eight hours, from eight in the morning till four in the afternoon. And then you're on from four in the afternoon till eight at night. So you're not in the middle of the night. You get to see the sunrise and the sunset. And so the first mate is who I got the deal to get on board with. So I got on his watch. And that's the best watch. And Topper was on with a second or third mate, and he was up at two in the morning and sleep in the daytime. You know, it was a and mess. he's out two hundred bucks. Yeah, <laughs> I'm two hundred richer. So I'm with the first mate, and the skipper is always up on the bridge with the first mate. So during this trip to the, all these other islands, and there's great stories in Pango Pango. Uh, well, I got to say a little bit about that. But before we got to Pango Pango, I get to, to meet the skipper, and he's a Norwegian guy. And I told him, I said, uh, you know, I'd really appreciate it if you would write me a letter of recommendation when we get to Australia. And he said, oh, okay. But he said, you know, my English is not so good. He said, I'll give you stationery on the Thorzal line, and you write the letter, and I'll stamp it with my official stamp and sign it as Captain Salem was his name. And I said, okay, that'll be great. Well, I wrote a bitchin' letter like I was one of the great sailors of the world, and he stamped and signed it. I still have it. And uh, so <clears throat> on the way, I got to be friends with him, and he, you know, he was a good guy. And uh, he said, oh, yeah, we were the biggest steamship company in the world or in Norway, and we've got ships all over the South Seas. And he said, when you're in Australia, there'll be several of our ships that will come into Sydney or Melbourne, the two big ports. So he kind of gave me a heads up on that. So in the meantime, we go to <clears throat> these different ports, and Pango Pango was another one where the culture was so different. We, it's called Rainmaker Mountain in the harbor. There's no dock. So we come in the harbor and drop the anchor in the harbor, and it's an L-shaped thing. So you came in, and it's raining, and the mountain is there, and it's jungle where there's no beaches, and the drums are beating. I mean, this is, it's, it's like these early movies. <clears throat> I don't know if you ever saw the movie, but I think it was called uh, the, uh, South of Pango Pango was a movie you know, like made in the 30s. And it was about some American that went there and he was diving uh, for pearls in these great clams. And he dove and got his leg caught in a clam, caught him down and he drowned. And it was all about Pango Pango. And I saw the movie when I was probably eight or 10 years old. So Pango Pango just had a great ring to it. Mm -hmm. We dropped the anchor. The drums are beating and just jungle everywhere. And all of a sudden, two outriggers paddle out and they're and we're looking over the side and they're all girls they're all topless just a little period around their waist and they tie up the anchor chain and the links on a big freighter are about a foot long on the chain and the anchors down there and they tie off and these links are big enough and they're barefooted it's like a ladder they oh can just gosh. put their feet in that and so they know some of the norwegian crew because this ship had been there maybe six months earlier and the guys in the crew the norwegians that i'm with they're yelling down they throw a line over and the girls brought off 
three or four cases of Foster's beer. Wow. And so they're hoisting the beer up, and the girls, here they're running up, and it was sunset. It was just dusk. And, you know, they're, I was just taken by the whole thing. Their topless, their boobs, they're, they're running up this, these chains like a ladder, and they're yelling and teasing. The Norwegians are yelling at them. And they had a, the Norwegians had a, 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 a little portable radio and with uh, old records. In those days, we had uh, CDs that were, they weren't, they were like a record. You played them in a machine, but it was not as big as a 78 record or smaller than that. And so we got that on the uh, one of the hatch covers, and the beer comes up, and here's all the girls. There's not a guy on the ship. I'm the outriggers. All girls must have been four or five in each canoe, so there's eight or ten of them. And we're dancing and everything, and we were there about five days, and one of the Norwegian crew ends up getting married to one of the Tahitian girls. We go ashore. The whole crew goes ashore. The captain, everybody cooked a big pig. I mean, every, it was just like you read about the South Seas. I got there right on the edge just before... <clears throat> You know, the techie stuff was catching up. Airplanes weren't flying to these little islands yet. Airports weren't made, but they were on the verge of made. So I was got right on the edge of that old-style South Seas before it was tourism and, and you know, all the ships that go to all these places now because they're not... I've been back to Tahiti seven or eight times, and it's nothing like it was when I was there. So I was just lucky in the timing to get there before they had been overcome with tourists and a different way of life, a different culture. Once the airplanes started coming, then they started having access to, you know, telephones and food and different things that changed their culture as much as I was trying to absorb their earlier culture. Right. <clears throat> so anyway, it was just great experiences. I uh, went to Samoa. Uh, and we had to offload this fire engine. And because there's no docks in these islands, the ships would anchor in a little cove, and the barge would come out, and they would have the crane on the ship, which wasn't heavy enough to, you had to take the, the wheels off the fire engine because it couldn't lift the whole thing to put it on the barge. And then the guys on the day crew, see, I'm off all day. So I go ashore. Topper's got to work. He's, yep. he's a crew. You know, he's working from, let's say, uh, if he came on after I would, it'd be 8 to uh, 10 in the morning or 10 to yeah. 4 or something. So I'm on the beach and meeting the girls, and they want to, you know, they want all this. Here's a ship coming. That's new and exciting totally. to them. So all of a sudden, uh, whether I'm American or Norwegian, they don't care, they don't know. She takes me home, and she lives in a thatched, uh, roofed hut, no walls to it, just posts holding up the roof. And it rains like cats and dogs there, but it doesn't usually blow, so it doesn't get wet in there. And they did have little panels that they could cover up a little bit. So I spent the night with her, and you know, she invites me to her house, introduces me to her mom and her dad, and they sleep on the floor of this thing with it's hot and sticky so there's no blankets and they have a, a kind of a pillow and they're just laying on the floor sleeping and here we are with the daughter sleeping right beside her mom and dad and i like you know i'm all want to be all over but here's you know like you wouldn't ever be sleeping with a girl in those days at home 
in yeah. high school age next to the mom and dad. Right. And so the culture and the change and the the things you witnessed, the way people lived then in different areas of the world, I was just enthralled with it because it was exciting, it was different, it was unique, and I was loving every minute of it, but I was so hesitant because my own culture was prohibiting me from really getting into right well just to clarify when you say sleeping with the girl are you guys fooling around with her parents laying right there yeah that's insane we're we're having sex eventually but it took me a couple of days i mean the first day i'm just there and kind of wrapped up with her not knowing when she was encouraging me yeah but but it's hard to take that cue yeah that is tough when their parents are right here that's wild and so the second or third day i don't remember when well we went home and i'm thinking well, she seemed to be okay with it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you kind of, but it takes you a while to accept another culture when it's so ingrained our culture in your brain, at least. And, you know, I was young and naive. Now, today, we're more aware of these yeah, things. Yeah. It was just so different then. So I could tell a million stories of all these islands and little, little events that happened, and they were exciting and fun. So we eventually got to Australia. I signed off. I got the letters from the captain. Uh, I hitchhiked from, God, I wish could, it was up in Queensland. Um, I just can't think of the city that I got off. And I hitchhiked down to Sydney because uh, I knew that they had surfed in Sydney. There was a guy from Honolulu that I would known had gone to Australia uh, the year or two before I had left. And he had just gone there on a trip on a ship and come back and he had surfed in Sydney. And so Manly uh, Beach was the name of it. And so I wanted to go to Manly because I figured there was surfboards there. So I went down there. I met uh, a guy named Nipper Williams, who was their hot surfer at the time, and stayed with him. He invited me in right away. So I stayed in Sydney for uh, probably three months and lived with Nipper, and we went to freshwater and curl, curl, up and down the coast surfing, you know, what he knew of then. And they had a couple of balsa boards that um, this guy that I knew from Hawaii, he had gone over with a couple other guys, and they had taken balsa boards from Honolulu and left them there. And then they had tried to make some after that, but they didn't have access to fiberglass and resin, so that was a problem. So I met a couple other guys, a guy named Bluey Mays was a character. He drove a taxi in Sydney, and it was an old uh, Holden car with a taxi on the roof, and he'd build a rack, and he had this redwood board on the roof of the rack, and so we'd call up Bluey, because we didn't have cars, other guys didn't have cars, and we'd uh, say, Bluey, we want to go up to Freshie. Yeah, I'll be over in a minute. So he'd put down the taxi sign and drive up and get us, and we'd ride around all the beaches in an old uh, Holden taxi in Sydney in those days. And a, a great time there, and a the, the different culture there. The the bars, uh, they, those Aussies could really drink, but <laughs> I couldn't, I'm not that much of a drinker. But in the bar, the girls can't go in the bars in those days, just the guys. And the flo- there's no seats, there's no chairs or anything. You stand at the bar, and it's all tile. So the floor is tile, and then the wall below the bar is tile. And not everybody, there was a restroom there, 
a toilet, but half the guys would get drunk and they would stand at the bar and just pee on the floor. Crazy. And there was a, a drain there, and you're, it was just like you pee on your feet and it drained down the drain. Wild. But the girls had to stay out in the lobby of the hotel. No, they couldn't go in the bar. And so then they'd have parties, and they'd take me to these parties because I was an oddity, being an American and knew all about surfing that they didn't know. They wanted to pick my brain. and So they were really friendly and great guys, and I saw them all over the years many times. So they'd take me to a house party, and like our house parties in those days, you'd be out on the living room with the girl hustling her, trying to get your arm around her, and be kissing or whatever, and having a beer, trying to get her kind of drunk so you could loosen her up a little bit. But the guys in Australia, they'd all go in the kitchen and just get shit-faced. Hmm. And the girls would all sit in the living room, and they'd be talking, and when the guys were ready to go home, and they knew each other, obviously, uh, the guys would say, come on, we're going home. And it was really crude. And so I thought, God, this is great. I stayed in the living room, and the girls all wanted to talk and hear them American uh, dialect and so I'm out there hustling the girls and they didn't get, ever get hustled they thought this was really great so the, the Aussies were really crude in those days about it. So, again, a different culture, different way of living, but closer to ours, obviously, than Tahiti. So I spent three or four months in Australia, <clears throat> and I kept watching the paper and see when ships would come in. So one day I was in Sydney, and I see a Thor ship in Sydney Harbor. So I go down, uh, and I asked to see the captain, and the first mate or second mate, forget who it was then, took me up the gangplank, introduced me to the captain. I said, Captain, I just got off the Thor's Isle, uh, and I have a letter from Captain Salem. I'd like to ha have you read it. And Captain Salem, he said, hell, I went to, in, Aust in uh, Norway, all these kids that wanted to go to sea then would go to a, a seaman's school not college per se, and they, if they wanted to, they'd stay longer, learn to navigate, and they'd become an officer on a Norwegian ship. If you just wanted to go to sea, then they'd either teach you to be in the engine room or on the deck crew, and there was a learning curve about that. So these guys would go to sea when they were 15 in Norway or 16, and they were young kids, and then the officers would be like 19 or 20. They'd be a third mate and work his way up to second mate and first mate and eventually a skipper. So, all, so the skippers were all roughly the same age, so they knew each other. And I, he read the letter, and he said, oh, Captain Salem, you know, I've known him for years. And he said, uh, you know, we're sailing for Singapore. I said, I know. I saw it in the paper. That's where I want to go. And I showed him my visa for Singapore. And he said, well, we're going to leave tomorrow at 4 or whatever it was. They always leave at 4 and uh, come aboard. So that letter allowed me to get on another ship. We went up through the Great Barrier Reef, went to... Uh, 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 I'm trying to think of the city, Sarabaya, Indonesia, uh, and all through Bali and there and dropping off different things. Eventually, and I didn't get off at any of those places, but I could go ashore during my off time for eight hours. So in Bali and uh, Indonesia, I went ashore, but I, I had no particular interest in that, so I was anxious to go get to Singapore. So I signed off at Singapore, and at Singapore I spent... I don't know, probably four or five days in Singapore. And I, you know, I, I would read about all this stuff before I got there. Uh, in Australia, I'd go to the American Library. We had American libraries in 
almost every major city of the world. So in Sydney on a rainy day, we weren't going to the beach or something. I'd go read Singapore Time, where I knew I was kind of heading for, how I could get there and what to see. And my mom, being a teacher, had always encouraged me, well, you've got to go see these specific places. You know, when you go to France, you've got to go to the Louvre, and you've got to do this, and you've got to do that. So that was kind of ingrained. I mean, I wasn't interested in it. I just thought I should. So. Yeah. In Singapore, uh, during the Second World War, there was a, uh, I don't know if you've seen any of those old movies about it, but there was a, the English surrendered to the Japanese, and the English troops were all in a prison camp, right, in Singapore for five years or something. And it was really harsh, and uh, there was a movie that, uh, it wasn't Steve McQueen was in it, but it was a guy like that, it's called The Rat, I think. Hmm. And they were, showed how they were eating rats, catching rats in the prison and I so said I wanted to see that I want to go to the Raffles Hotel and I don't know if you've ever know about the Raffles Hotel but it was an old style the the king of hotels in Singapore with elaborate overhead fans that were run on a belt and you wore white suits in those days and I used to see all these old movies Sydney Green Street and um what was his sidekick uh the little guy in the Falcon. I'm not sure. <laughs> well, anyway, Sidney Green Street was a big, fat guy, and he always wore a, a white suit, <clears throat> white hat, and they'd go into the Raffles Hotel and have a Singapore sling. So I had to do that. You know, stuff like that yeah. that I wanted to do. And the hotel was magnificent, but old English style because that was an English colony originally. So England, in those early years, in the 20s and the 30s and the, up until the world war had half the globe was pink and all the pink colonies were india and you know most of the world were english either colonies or protectorates or whatever and singapore being one of those so there's a lot of english history and so i stayed there a few days and went to the hotel and saw all that stuff and then i started hitchhiking up the malay peninsula I wanted to go to Kuala Lumpur and up the Malay Peninsula to Thailand. And you've seen the movie, I'm sure. Uh, again, I'm so bad on names and movies. Uh, William Holden was in it, and they were fixing a railway okay. in a, a prison camp. Oh, bridge. Bridge over, over the River Kwai. Yeah. Well, there's a real, that was real. Right. And I went on that train that went over the bridge on the River Kwai. So you go through the jungle of Thailand, and I went on that little train. I went, went off to the coast and went to the island of Penang, <clears throat> just off the coast uh, on the Straits of, uh, Her not Hormuz, Straits of uh, Malacca. And that's where the great snake temple is. Okay. I'd read about that. And so they worship the poisonous snakes in the world. You go in this temple, which I did, and it's kind of dark, and they have incense burning, and there's pythons on the floor and cobras and puff adders and the most poisonous snakes in the world are all curled around and just kind of, and people come in, pick up a snake and go to the altar, and they'll kiss it and they'll hold it and worship it. And But I think the... I was scared to death in there because yeah. I stepped on a python. Jesus, scared me. And here's snakes curled up. And But they were kind of half asleep. They weren't like on their guard to nail you. <clears throat> so I never sat down. It was dark enough. But they had all this incense. And I think it was just enough to 
keep them. The incense sedates them? It sedates them a little bit, and they're moving slow. They're, they'd be on the floor going along, but not fast, and they didn't coil up. I'm used to hiking in the lagoon. We used to have rattlesnakes all the time where they'd coil up and want to strike at you, yeah. you know. And these so were people weren't getting bit? No, uh-uh, they weren't getting bit. Crazy. And so I got pictures of all this, and I had special film in those days that I could take, put it down, and you couldn't hold it because you'd shake it, but put it on a table, and it would open the shutter longer. And even though it was dark, I did get some pictures of it. So I went to the island of Penang, back uh, to Thailand, up to Bangkok. Uh, I didn't like the Orient so much. The culture, the food, the language, I couldn't figure that out. And I wanted to see the Golden Temple and the great uh, uh, palace in Thailand where the royal family lived and went in all that and saw all that. But I was moving fairly fast. A day here, a day there. Went into Cambodia, Laos, across Burma. I wanted to go. The names fascinated me. So before I had gone, I'd read and got maps out. Singapore, Kuala Lumpur, those all Rangoon. Those had a ring to me. So I went to Rangoon. I wanted to go up the Irrawaddy River in Burma. And Burma was a communist country and was not good with tourists. And there was really nothing to see other than Rangoon. I just wanted to be there. Uh, And I just kept going across to... um, Chittagong and into India and so I'm hitchhiking all the way but there's nobody driving around in a car you'd get rides in trucks that were transporting produce basically from the farm to the city and the truck drivers would pick you up and so that's how I traveled most of the time and sometimes like the train you could ride on a train for like 20 cents, you know, or get on a ferry boat and go up there to Irrawaddy for a quarter. So uh, my budget was pretty tight, but, you know, you could afford stuff like that. So I eventually get to... We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we get back, Dick's going to tell us about being jailed in Bombay, getting chased by a rhino in Africa, and his chance encounter with pioneer surfer and surfboard builder in South Africa, John Whitmore. So we'll be right back. We're introducing a brand new sponsor this month with the holidays in mind, posterburner.com slash surf. Posterburner makes the process of printing photos easy and inexpensive, and I'm sure that you've had images that you've been intending to print for a long time, but just never got around to figuring out the best way to do it. Posterburner allows you to upload your images and then turn them into anything from posters to canvases, Christmas ornaments, phone cases, puzzles, water bottles, coffee mugs, pillowcases, license plates, shirts, dog tags, all sorts of stuff that's great for gifting. The printing is high quality. They have old-fashioned, conversational customer service. They print fast, they ship fast, and they offer a money-back guarantee if you're not happy with your product. So posterburner.com slash surf gives you 10% off your entire order, and it supports this show. Posterburner.com slash surf. Thanks. So I eventually get to... uh Calcutta and India, stayed in the YMCA in downtown Calcutta, and Dalhousie Square is a big park, like Central Park. You know, there's like 10 million people that live in Calcutta, and I, I'd get up early at the Y, and I stayed there for like a buck a night or something, and 
in the morning, you'd go down and people had died on the sidewalk and an ox cart that I took pictures of would come by with two or three Indians and they'd pick up these dead bodies, throw them in the ox cart and take them off, bury them or burn them or do something with them. And, but it just amazed me. And then you'd go out in Dollhouse Square and there'd be all these uh, Indians, you know, smoking a pipe, cobras, mongoose fighting, a rope going up in the sky, and they'd be climbing the rope, laying on a bed of nails. All those things that you've seen or heard about were happening in Dollhouse Square. And it was great, fun to see all yeah. this. But <clears throat> I didn't like India either. People wanted to touch you all the time. Mm. They're real curious, and there's beggars, and they're, they've deformed beggars purposely yep. so they and I watched them they have a, a regular route for them they had one group of guys they had a 40 1940 Buick four door and they'd taken the back seats out and just had straw in it and they'd have two or three bodies laying in this straw and they'd come to a, a well-traveled corner and lift them out because they were helpless by themselves put them on the sidewalk and put a cup on their chest for honest um their Indian money, and the guy would just kind of hunch along, and then at night, I've watched these guys over several days, and they'd come and grab the cup full of money and put the guy in the back and take him somewhere and feed him, and then they'd bring him out the next day on a different corner. Crazy. And this one guy I got a picture of, they broke both his legs and one arm. He had one good arm, and the legs were so broken, they were laying kind of on his chest. Jeez. And he just had a little uh, kind of a thong around his vitals, and he would just kind of hunch along on his back, and people would put arms in there. They would take babies and put their feet in a wooden box. So their feet, now they're 10 years old, yeah. and their feet are, you know, the size of this. Yeah, they're bound. Square and all yeah. bound up. And they'd do all kind of shit with their neck or ear, whatever it was. It was unbelievable. Yeah, really disturbing. <clears throat> and I tried to get pictures, and the first time I got my camera out, and uh, the citizenry started throwing rocks at me. They didn't want me to take pictures yeah. uh, of that kind of stuff. Yeah. So... Um, I put the camera down on the wall and would set a time exposure and walk away from it. And then this guy would kind of come along and I'd get a picture of him. Gotcha. And later on, I went back, you know, I've been back to Africa, I don't know, 10 or 11 times. I got a, a, a Rolex, uh, Roloflex. I think that's the name. Oh, one. yeah, the, the camera. Yeah, the I camera. Forget, yeah. And I've got all that stuff over here, the okay. cameras I took. But then I could take that camera and, in a regular camera you'd put up to your eye, yeah. 35 millimeter, yeah. and then they'd see you're taking a picture. But this, I'd hang around my neck. Bolex. And I, no, it was no. a Rolex. Okay. I've got it over okay. here. Show it to you. But you'd look down in it, yep. and it's taking a picture over yeah. here, but I'm looking here. Or I'd hold it up like this, and I'd take pictures, and they're all looking up at right. what they think I'm looking at. Right. But I'm really taking a picture over here. Right. So that made a big difference when I, the second trip, it allowed me to get pictures that I couldn't get the first time. Right. <clears throat> so all that was interesting. So I hitchhiked across to India. I got on trains. Hitchhiking in India was really hard because there's no cars, and the trucks wouldn't pick you up so easily. But you could ride on the trains, and the train cars were, each car had a different class. So in India, depending how you're dressed or the different color of 
uh, uh, color you have on your forehead indicates. So if you're an untouchable, you know, you got a red dot and you got rags on. And so for two Annas, you could buy, get on a railroad car, but you had to go in that particular car. Yep. Those cars you can't walk through like ours. So, there, so once you got through the station, you'd buy the ticket as you went into the station, not on the train. And so if you were a Hindu, you had a turban and a beard, and that had another car. And you'd pay a price higher because that was a cleaner, better car. So I got Untouchables to buy me a ticket. And because I was white, they didn't expect me. I could get through the gate into the platform with a two-cent ticket, but then they figured I'm going to go. So there's a white car, yeah. and that's the best car. Right. So I'd go to the white car for two cents. For two cents. Yeah. And, but what happens is every now and then an inspector will get on your car. He can't get off your car mm -hmm. while it's going. He has to get off at a station. So he got in our car and checked everybody in our car and arrested me because I had the wrong ticket. Put me in jail in Bombay. And... Um, and there again, I was all for uh, buying my way off, so I gave the jailer ten bucks. Okay, and uh, bought my way out of the jail. I was in jail for I don't know five hours, maybe. Gotcha. So then I got went to Bombay and still had I had a letter from the second uh, Thorzal ship I was on. So now I got two letters, and I waited in Bombay and got on a ship there called the State of Bombay, and went from Bombay across the Indian Ocean to the Seychelles Islands, which I'd never even heard of, but which were spectacular, very similar to Tahiti, because there had been black slaves. It had been a French possession and an English possession. They had mixed with the black African slaves and the Arabs on their dows that had come across to get the slaves. So you had a mixture of French, English, Arab, and blacks, and they kind of looked like Tahitians. Yeah. I mean, they were kind of of a blended color, and they had a lot of Caucasian features, and they were just as wild as the Tahitians were. <laughs> and I got off in a, the main city of Mahi. We were there for a couple of days, and uh, they had one record that they played in the bar, and it was In the Mood by Johnny Miller. Oh, wow. And so I'd be dancing with these girls, uh, to Glenn Miller in the mood in the in the bar. So then we went from the Seychelles, great beaches. The diving was fabulous. Jack Custo said it's the best diving in the world around mm. there. And there's surf there. It was really great. Uh, but I couldn't find any surfboards. And then we went to um, <clears throat> Zanzibar, and I was there for two or three days, the old slave island right off the coast of East Africa. And then, then we went to Mombasa, the big port, in Kenya, and I signed off there because I had a visa for Kenya, and then I started hitchhiking in Mombasa, and Kenya is right on the equator, but it's about, the it's a plateau, and there's high mountains, Kilimanjaro is 19,000 feet, but the plateau is about six or 7,000 feet. So you're on the equator, but you're high enough that it's not hot and sticky, and it's really a kind of a climate like we have here. So in Mombasa, you're, it's hot and sticky because you're at sea level, and we went up right away <clears throat> 
on, on the road to Nairobi and got up in the high country, and then that's where the, the great Serengeti Plains and all the open area of Kenya and Tanzania, or Tanganyika then, uh, was. So I went up to Nairobi. I stayed at the Y a couple of days. I went to the English club and got a job working on a safari for a safari company, taking uh, the truck that would take the tents and the food and all the gear out for uh, people that had paid to go on, not a, a hunting safari, well, some of them were, but most of the time I did that for several months. It was mostly photography hmm. safari. So they'd take Americans and English and Germans out on a safari to see animals and just take pictures and i would with a bunch of black guys set up tents and get the tables ready and that kind of thing so it was a great way to get around out in the jungle out in the bush and yeah. see the animals which i wanted to do that was all part of my plan yeah and uh, and go to different places and not have to pay for it or uh you know do it somehow on my own so i i was well, I was in Africa a year and a half, and I don't remember how long I was in Kenya, but I went to all over Kenya, and uh, then I wanted to go to the Ngorongoro Crater. I wanted to go to Kilimanjaro, and that's right on the border of Tanganyika and Kenya. So I hitchhiked from Nairobi, and they said the Great North Road. And it's a four-lane in Nairobi. is a pretty cosmopolitan city because it was English, and they had built it all, paved roads and buses. And, and so <clears throat> a four-lane road went out, they called the Great North Road, and then as soon as it got to the city limits, it turned into a one-lane dirt track. It wasn't even a road. It was just a track. So I got rides on that down to the uh, town of Arusha, which is just over the Tanganyika border and at the foot of Mount Kilimanjaro. And <clears throat> I went in there, and there was a, a little hotel and a bar. And because I was been a bartender, I always said, I'll tend bar for you for meals. And so they said, well, yeah, teach us how to make American drinks because they were more English background. Pim's Cup and stuff, they drink. You know, they want to know how to make, um, you know, old-fashioned or, you know, stuff like that. So, they, you know, just I'd tend bar for maybe three or four hours and, and get a meal or something. And so they told me, there was a German farm up on the slopes of Kilimanjaro and Maru. There's two mountains. Maru's not quite as high as Kilimanjaro. And in the saddle of the two was this German farm. And they said they hire off and on different guys uh, to help out at the farm. So I hitchhiked up there and I got a job working this German farm right on the slopes, and I didn't really do much, and they didn't have much going on, but they were interested. A lot of times it was a kind of a trade-off. You'd get a job. A job really wasn't much of a job, but they wanted company. They wanted to learn about America. You know, there was no television. There was none of this stuff then. So they, you know, they would maybe get a crackling radio, BBC, uh, occasionally, and they'd hear about a war going on somewhere. But there was no up-to-date news. So to have somebody like me come along that they could talk to and just to have them around the dinner table, to buy yep. them a meal, yep. was a trade-off for yep. them and it was a trade-off for me. And they spoke enough English. And, yeah, that you could get by. And so I got a job, and, uh, with I say a job, but I lived in that farm. And what they were doing, they had a couple of Africans live there and they 
would migrate with the herds as they would migrate during the weather changes. You know, you've seen the Serengeti where they go on these huge treks for hundreds of miles to stay with the water because the the rainy seasons are two times a year and the rivers go down and so the herds have to move. And these Africans would, they didn't really count them, but they were kind of follow the herds and see how their immigration and migration was to the different areas and they would go into Kenya and back across the border. That's why the border was hard because the animals are going back and forth across and a lot of the natives were too. So I went with this black guy and we would just go hiking and there'd be zebra and impala and wildebeest would be migrating. They're, they're always on the move but not running fast. They're just grazing and moving and then another herd would come from another direction and they would kind of integrate and the herd would get bigger and he'd kind of take some notes and we'd just follow it. And you know, I'd see all the other game out there. I, I kept asking the guy, you know, have you seen any rhinoceros? And he said, oh yeah, there'll be, we'll see some. So we were wandering out there and he had gone on with the herd and he said, there's a rhino down there by that little pond. And I wanted to get a, a better picture and he was kind of following the herd off in a different direction. And I'd been up there by myself enough to, you know, kind of get the feel of it. And so <clears throat> I went down by this rhino. He was just laying on his side, sleeping in the sun. And I thought, God, this is scary because there's, there was a little acacia tree about 100 yards away from him. I'm thinking if he gets up and chases me, where am I going to climb that acacia tree? So I kind of had it figured out what I was going to do. And so I took a couple of pictures of him laying down there, and that wasn't very exciting. So I get closer and closer, and I'm really leery that he's going to jump up because they have great sense of smell, but they can't see oh, very okay. well. So finally, I'm taking about three pictures. I get closer, and he's still sleeping. So I pick up a rock and throw it at him, and it just bounces off his big old hide. But he jumps up, and he's facing the other way, and he gets my scent and turns around, paws the ground, I get one picture, and when he paws the ground, I figure he's coming. So I turned around and ran like hell for that acacia tree, and it was a tree about that big around. It wasn't very big, it wasn't very high, but it had branches up about six feet, and I grabbed a branch. I didn't know how close he was behind me, but I, I was a sprinter, and I said earlier I had scholarships, and I ran the hurdles, so I, was, I ran fast. I won a lot of track meets and got scholarships, so I was always confident that I could outrun most animals, but some of these guys can move really fast, yeah. and I got the branch. I kind of swung up into the branch, and he comes up a couple seconds later, and he just smacks the tree, wow. hits the tree, and like I say, it's a tree about that big around. And it didn't break it, but it, well, it did break it, but it didn't just knock it down. And he hit it, and it just kind of grabbed, and I'm on this branch, not very high, but my weight didn't help either. And it just kind of leaned over, uh, and the branches fell down, and so I just kind of went with it. But it only went about six feet. It wasn't like real high. And I thought, God, is he going to stomp on the tree? But he just kind of stomped and ran off in another oh, direction. Wow, that but, is so lucky. But it was really a scary thing. No kidding. And I mean, so, it was a terrible idea from yeah, the get-go. Yeah. Well, you know, you get out there and you feel kind of <laughs> confident. And you see him sleeping and I figure I could outrun him. And, that confidence is usually the end for most people. <laughs> so <laughs> That anyway, comes right you, before the fall. You have all kinds of experiences like that or that are just 
when you get home are exciting and you can tell it and show a picture about it. So those are the kind of things that I had. And I went back, say, a year later, I flew back, rented a Volkswagen, took out the seats, and drove out just out in the Serengeti where I'd been before because I kind of knew myself way around. And I slept in the Volkswagen and saw a lot of animals. So, you know, it's different ways to do it. But I did it on the cheap the second time, even though I flew over there and knew where I wanted to go. So anyway, I went back to Arusha, and this is where it was critical. And this is an important part of the story, even though I've been talking way too long, I'm sure. In Arusha, I started hitchhiking, and a guy picks me up in a Jeep, he was a, a, a Swedish guy. And uh, he said, first thing I said, where do you want to go? And I said, I want to go to Victoria Falls. And, you know, that was about 1,000 miles away. Africa is four times bigger than America. So when you think of Africa, you know, like going from Laguna to New York is five-day drive. Well, multiply that by four, and that's how big we're talking about. So 1,000 miles in Africa is not... A long ways. Right. And so he said, great, I'm going right to Victoria Falls. Get in. Well, there's only one road, and it is not even a road. You're going over rocks. There's no bridges. you got to ford the rivers. Uh, I mean, it's you're in fourth, you're in two, a four-wheel drive, and you're going, you drive eight hours and maybe go 150 miles. You're going over rocks and roots and trees. you got to get out and cut a, a tree or move a tree so you can get around it. And so... He's got, you got, there's no gas stations. You got, he carries, uh, all his gas is in the back of the, of the Jeep. It wasn't a Jeep, it was a Land Rover, that type. And you got to carry your own food. There's no place to get food. There's no place to get anything. So I ride with, and so the guy said, I'm going to see my mom's in the hospital and I'm driving around the clock and you can help me drive. We'll do two hours on, sleep for two, drive for two around the clock. Because we had the gas there and just to keep going. And so we did that, I don't know, for, I'm going to say for three days before we get to Victoria Falls. And it was like two in the morning we get there. It's the middle of the night. He's driving. I'm asleep in the passenger seat. Uh, You know, dark, it's cold. And he wakes me up and he says, well, we're at Victoria Falls. This is where you wanted to get out. And I look out the window it's, there's no hotels, there's no gas, there's no nothing. And there's a couple of mud huts and a little fire that's dying out. And I look out the window and I said, where'd you say you're going? He said, I'm going to Cape Town. Uh, I got to see my mom in the hospital there. And this is where you want to get out. I said, shit, I can see Victoria Falls anytime. Let's go to Cape Town. I didn't want to get out. Yeah. No, I mean, I had slept out. And if I had gotten there in the middle of the afternoon, I would have gotten out sure. and stayed there. And what I would usually do, if there was no town, I had a blanket and a poncho that would keep the rain off. I would go to any little huts that people were living in, and I'd kind of sign language, draw in the dirt, you know, can I sleep in front of your hut? And a lot of times they'd have a little overhang, uh, and I'd keep you out of the weather if there was weather. And, and I felt safer that I was with their hut. Um, and that was, I had some scary experiences there too. But anyway, there was nothing here. It was the middle of the night. And I said, screw it. Let's go to Cape Town. That decision changed the surfing world. And we'll 
explore how but uh the fact that i didn't get out there i had no plans to go to cape town and if i had gotten out in the daytime i probably never would have gone to cape town but the fact that i did i met john whitmore i made surfboards there i met i founded cape st francis i went to jay bay and that's how the endless summer came about if i had gotten out or not gone to cape town that probably never would have happened wow so that was always John Whitmore. You know who he was. I do. Well, John, every time we saw each other, I said, boy, I'm sure glad you didn't get out at Victoria yeah. Falls because it changed his whole life. Totally. So we drove from Victoria Falls that night another week, maybe 10 days to get to Cape Town. Um, Crazy. We get to Cape Town. And this is the other thing. So in big city, Cape Town, big seaport, and we're driving through Cape Town. He knew his way around. He's going to the Groot Shear Hospital, which I've been to several times now since then, and it's up on the hill. And he said, I'm going to turn left at that next intersection. I could see the ocean. I said, I'll get out that next intersection and walk down the ocean about two blocks away. So I did get out, walked down, and Whitmore was a used car salesman. And it was his lunch break, and he had made the ugliest surfboard I'd ever seen and was trying to get in some waves at Glen's Beach. And I didn't even know where it was, but I get down the beach, and I'm in a, I have a beard by then. I hadn't cut my hair in a couple of years or a year and a half, whatever it was. I had, and this was before beatniks, before uh, hippies before any of that stuff. So I looked different. I had a Tahitian hat on. I've got it right there in that room uh, with beads on it. I got a pair of torn shorts and an old Aloha shirt on. I got a rucksack. And the most important thing, I had sandals that were made in Mexico out of tires, which I also have there. And those were only what the Africans wore. White guys didn't wear stuff like that. And I've been in the sun. I'm pretty dark skinned. I was really black uh and so i come down and whitmore had been in the water and he was in two feet of water and there's a bunch of rocks and kelp and he's trying on he's laying on his surfboard trying to kind of work his way through the rocks to get to the beach where he could stand up and he's got a little goatee and i'm standing there and he loses the board it's kind of too rocky and he kind of slides off and he's kind of not swimming but just pushing his way through the rocks, and I grabbed the board so it wouldn't, there's a little surge in there, and I, so it wouldn't get dinged, and I pick it up, and I said, this is the ugliest surfboard I've ever seen, and he's kind of in the water, and he's looking up, he's got hair wet and everything, he said, well, what the hell do you know about surfboards, and I said, I don't know a lot, but I know more than you if you made this ugly thing, I was trying to be funny, and he started laughing then, he said, who are you, what are you doing? And he said, where are you from? And I said, well, I've been living in Hawaii. Oh, my God, Hawaii and uh, Southern California. Oh, God, he said, you got to come home with me. And, of course, he's talking in a dialect, southern, kind of Afrikaans. And um, so he takes me. He has a Volkswagen Combi van, and he's selling used cars uh, at a car lot. And he's got three daughters and a little, he called it a bungalow, in a place called Backoven, which is kind of a suburb of Cape Town. And we drive down there. And before we even parked the car, he's yelling out the window, Thelma, Thelma, that was his wife. Call the mates, we're having a braai. And I didn't know what a braai was, and I didn't know about his mates. I didn't know what he meant, girls or guys or what he meant. And in about five minutes, there must have been 10 people there 
with bottles of wine, chicks in bikinis. And I'd been in black Africa for a year. I'd been all through the Orient before that. I hadn't hardly seen a white woman, especially it was just like Laguna. It looked like Laguna Beach, the Sandy Cove, a rocky point, another Sandy Cove. And all these gals are there and drinking wine, and they're getting a barbecue going. And I thought, God, is this bitching or what? Wow. This is really great. So that was my first meeting with John Whitmore. And I ended up moving in with him. I slept on his couch. He had this little house. He's married to Thelma, and he and Thelma are in one bedroom. The other bedroom is Thelma's uh, mother. And Thelma's little sister, Patty, they're in one bedroom. The two daughters, well, he only had two daughters and later a third one. Two were sleeping in the room with John and Thelma. And his wife's little brother, Earl Krauss, was living under the garage downstairs, kind of an open area. And here I come, one more yeah. person, and he puts me on the couch in the living room. Well, Patty is 17 years old and a model in Cape Town. Well, I immediately fall in love with her, and I get shit-faced drunk uh, at that bride that first afternoon and night. I fall in the fire. I catch my shirt on fire. I'm throwing up, and they put me in the back of the Volkswagen because I'm so ridiculous, and I slept in there. The next morning, Patty comes out with a cup of tea, and you know she's real interested all of a sudden somebody from america that you know it's exciting for them there's no airplanes there's none of this is happening no tv you know they didn't know all this stuff and to see somebody that they'd only kind of read about they were beside themselves so you know right away she's got a she's a junior in high school and she's got to go to school in a little uniform and i want her to stay home and you know, I was all over her like a dirty shirt. So she comes home early, and we're laying out on the beach and getting to know each other. And I'm figuring out right away she's in the bedroom with her mom. How am I going to work this one out? And I'm on the couch in the living room. And so John comes home early. He just is interviewing me, just in session, just going to every question. How do you, what are surfboards made of? How do you do it? And tools and everything. So I went to the lumber yard. They didn't have any balsa wood. There's no fiberglass or resin. And it was new in California. I left in 58. Fiberglass and resin would just come out. It was new there. So they were, hadn't seen any of that yet. So, you know, I'm, every night would be drinking after dinner and I'd buy food and felt bad about staying there and I'd go down to the grocery store and buy a bunch of stuff and they'd cook it and you know it was just a great experience but I showed John told him how to make surfboards he had taken styrofoam and he found out that there was a he put shellac on it because it didn't have all this other stuff because I forgot marine varnish he had, and it dissolved the styrofoam. So he put shellac on it first, then he could put, um, and then he took canvas and wrapped it in canvas and then put marine varnish on that. So this board was lumpy. You couldn't shape it because styrofoam tears. You can't shape it. And it had square rails. There was no fin, a little bitty time of a fin, but he couldn't, he attached it to the canvas. Well, the canvas wasn't flattened. 
you know, it had bubbles on it, and it would rub on you. You know, it was just ugly. It was yeah. terrible. And it was didn't surf because it didn't have much of a fin. It didn't have any shape to it. You know, it just had a plan kind of a shape. And he made two of them. And that's why there's pictures of he and I surfing. And we'd have to wait till the wave actually broke and then get in the white water and then hope you could maybe get in the curl a little bit from mm -hmm. the white water. But you couldn't turn it. You know, it was terrible. Yeah. And so I stayed with him for six or seven months and uh, talked every day. And then Patty and I got together. And so we would go on the weekends so we didn't get away from mom. Uh, Patty and I and John and Thelma would get in the Volkswagen van and we'd go to Elands Bay. We'd go to Comakee and camp and surf and camp out and I could be with Patty. And they wanted me to be with Patty. John wanted me to marry Patty and stay in Cape Town. And so I told him how to make surfboards. And, and I said, when I go home, I got to go home. I, I really thought about staying right there. But I wanted to still go to the Olympics and I wanted to still go to Pamplona and I'd seen all this stuff now I wanted to get home and tell Hobie and Bruce and all my friends of where I'd been and the surf that I'd seen by now I'd been up and down the coast with John in South Africa and gone to surfed at Elands Bay every weekend and gone not to St. Uh, uh, Cape St. Francis that was too far up but surfed all around Cape Town so, you know, it was, I, did, I needed to go home, and I kept telling John, I got to go home at some point. And, but I said, I'll come back, you know, and I'll bring you stuff. And so John knew I was getting ready to go home. And so one day uh, he had a phone, you know, with a line on it, obviously, from his, where he worked to the house. And so the house is right on the sand at Backhoven. And I'd, with Patty would be at school, and I'd go out and get in the water, and, and I'd write long letters to my mom. I, had a, I kept notes on what I was doing and stuff. So I had stuff to do, and I was reading all the time about where I'm going next and what it's going to be like. So I had stuff to do, and the phone would ring, and I'm sitting right there and would pick up the phone. And if I didn't answer it, John figured I'm either in the water or I'm gone someplace. So... One day I decided I'm going to go, and I checked out. The, in Cape Town, it's a big city, but you could take the bus to the end of the line. There's only one road that goes up the coast uh, to Durban and East London and other cities, and the bus line would go out there, and then the bus would turn around and come back. But I couldn't hitchhike right in town. It was, you know, nobody was going to pick you up right in town. So I went and bought a whole bunch of groceries and had ri already written a letter and thanked them for staying there and everything. So I got on the bus and back over. took me a couple hours, I guess, to get out to the end of the line. The bus turned around. I got off where it turned around. There's a little tree there, and I'm sitting under the tree with my rucksack. In the meantime, John had called home, and I didn't answer. He had known that I was getting ready to go. So he gets in the Volkswagen bug just off the lot where he's working. I didn't recognize it because well, he usually drove this combi off the lot. So he's in a bug. And he goes up to the school and gets Patty out of school. And so I'm sitting there, and I know from experience that a car never goes by. They want to at least stop and talk to you and maybe invite you to dinner or something. So I get up. I'm just sitting in the shade, and I stand up. I see this little bug coming down. And pretty soon I'm looking at it, and I can see John's little goatee through the windshield, and he's slowing down. I'm standing up, and I'm like, oh, God, and here's Patty, and she's looking so good. And they get out, and I said, God, you can't leave. We're going to go to 
this we got this thing down at Elan's Bay this weekend, and we got this party, and Patty's crying, and I'm crying, and I'm hugging Patty, and God, it was really emotional, you know, and and I, I was having such a great time. John's a great guy, and we were just having fun doing stuff. So I said, okay, I get in the car, and John said, I will get you a ride up the coast because I know a salesman that drives up to East London, you know, like four times a year or something. And I'll call him up and get you a ride. Okay, so I go back and stay another month. And <clears throat> in our, my relationship with Patty just got more involved and more involved. And it was so hard to leave. God, it was so hard. And uh, But this guy comes by the house, and so I get in the car, and John says, when you go up, he's going to go up to East London, uh, make him, and he was right there. John's talking to him. He said, you got to take Dick out to Saint, Cape St. Francis. He said, I'm sure there's surf out there. I want have him go check it out. So we drive up the coast with this guy, and, and he stops at different places. He's selling marine stuff to uh, marine hardware kind of stores. And um, so we get to Cape St. Francis, and, and that's off the main road. And so he was a good guy, and, and I, you know, I'd been with him for several days. And so we drive out on a dirt road to Cape St. Francis, and there's not a, only one building there, nothing else. And it says on, I got a picture of that, Cape St. Francis General Store. And it's a little store, and I go in and talk to the owners running it, a guy named, uh, uh, God, what's his name? I know his name, too. I can't think of all these names. Anyway, I started talking to him, and he said, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm selling, they call lots plots there. He says, I'm selling these plots. I own all this property. And so I told the salesman, I got to spend the night here. Go on. And he said, I'll drive you out to the, we, we didn't go to the end of Cape St. Francis. It's a big point that sticks out. He said, I'll take you out. This is the guy in the store. And so we get in his Jeep, and it's all sandy, and we drive out. And I take a picture of the sign out there, Cape St. Francis. And it's windy, and there's big surf, but it's windy and blowing on shore. And then he takes me inside the point where there's different breaks. It wraps around this point, comes in this huge big bay, and it breaks in a dozen places. And one of them is Bruce's Beauties, that Bruce named. But there's sand dunes all around. And so I went down there, and he had an old Australian surf ski. So I asked him if I could borrow it. So I went out and surfed with that surf ski uh, at, at what Bruce named Bruce. There's no names to any of these places. Yeah. Nobody had surfed there. And so I surfed and I stayed. I slept in front of that. There again, it had an overhang and there was a dog there. I have a picture of me with a dog. Slept right on that front deck of this general store. And then I'd surf up and down with all these sand dunes, I walk up and down and see where these different breaks from little rocky points. It would come around the big point, and this swell would just come in this bay, and then it would break on these different little rocky kind of areas. And I've been back there a dozen times, and of course now there's a big town there and boat launching, and guys are surfing every one of those breaks. Yeah. And then it goes off, and there's a it's a big bay, and then another point, and another bay, and this is J Bay over mm -hmm. here. So I stayed a couple days there, and the guy said, I can get you a ride to uh, East London. There's a guy that comes out here and fishes all the time. He'll take you back. So we drove back to J through J Bay, and there's not a building, 
not, not a house, not a store, not a gas station, nothing. And waves all over the place. And that's where uh, super tubes and all those are. And I see all these waves are just pumping through there. I mean, it just, they don't stop. And so I didn't have a board and I'm with this guy. And so I'd gone to East London and eventually went to Durban and met some surfers there. And I borrowed one. They had, really, they were kook boxes with little fins on them. And I have a picture of Harry Bold, one of the guys I met there. And I said, can I borrow your board? And I said, do you have a candle? Because in those days, we didn't have wax. You'd take a candle and wax the board. And they had painted pictures on the kind of the nose of the board. And I start, and Harry says, you can't be waxing on my picture up there. What are you doing? I said, well, I'm going to try and get up on the nose. No way. You can't do that. So I said, well, I'll go give it a try anyway. So they, I'm in shorts, and I've still got a beard and a funny clothes on and they're laughing at me and they're all in in speedos and that's the way they dress you yeah. know and i'm laughing at them and making fun of them and so <clears throat> i go out and i got a little luck and there was surf about four feet or so and i did a stretch five I, i'm you know i could surf pretty good i mean i was a good surfer but not a great surfer and we didn't there weren't great ones and you just the guy that was the better surfer was the one that would take off on the biggest wave in the 40s and yeah. that day you know before Phil and all those guys. But anyway, I did a little stretch five, and they couldn't believe it, and they all waxed their boards and came out. Amazing. And then they called the mayor. They A guy named uh, Baron Stadler knew the mayor, and they said, you got to come down. There's a crazy American here showing us how to surf. And they gave me the key to the city. And the oh mayor gave me a free hotel room in Durban right on the beach for, I don't know, three or four days and meals at the hotel and everything. They took pictures of me and they did uh, a couple of articles in the, the local Rand Daily Mail was the yeah, name of the paper. That's amazing. <clears throat> said how it, it said an American that didn't join the rat race. And said how I hitchhiking around the world to surf, and I didn't want to go to work. A college graduate wasn't going to join the rat race and be a, a regular business person, you know. Do you still have that? Article? Yeah, I still have that. that. Is amazing. <laughs> Jamin Luoto and Leif Braun from NVS Fins have told us about how they've been able to respond to market needs for a higher quality, better performing, less expensive fin. But that alone wasn't enough to lure Jamin away from his career in neuroscience. Not only you kind of asked me what would have motivated me to kind of step away from the academia route, there were a number of personal things, but also it had to be pretty pretty compelling. Personally, I'm a bit of a, you know, I mean, Leif as well, he's, he's focused on this, but I'm very much... Um, focused on environmentalism and sustainability. That's sort of I'm a little bit of a hippie in that way. We agreed that we would be able to make a product that one was more accessible and affordable mm-hmm. to people, but that was better in many ways mm-hmm. in terms of in terms of performance. But eventually, even just quality. And one of the original things that we came to is that eventually we'd like to be able to make a fin that lasts, a really high quality fin that lasts. And that's we're not going to kid ourselves. There's nothing about the, any of these processes that are clean. None of it is. We, the, the process that we're using now for our Apex series fins is cleaner because we have a, the appropriate ratio of resin to glass. So we're actually using less resin. It's, it's less resin and it's epoxy resin. Right. Oh, okay. So it is actually, you know, there are, there's a reduced VOC output. It is a cleaner process. But 
the fins are built to last. These should be passed from generation to generation. And beyond manufacturing, with almost any consumer product, packaging is the biggest contributor to waste that ends up in our oceans and landfills. When I got my sets of NVS fins, they actually came in a neoprene sleeve that was sewn together from old wetsuits. Part of our whole sustainability thing is we, we weren't really interested in the retail packaging that seems to be standard for fins, um, mm. largely because it's often plastic integrated into some sort of um, material. And the reality is we talk to shops, they all have boxes of these things. People just people don't really use them. They buy the fins and these things either just sit in these boxes or end up in the landfill. Some people travel with them, but they're rarely used. So we just weren't interested. That's also part of kind of maintaining our pricing is, is reducing our overhead and not passing unreasonable, unnecessary costs on to the customer with stuff that really isn't just isn't utilized and also just kind of runs counter antithetical to our, our sustainability ethos. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're we're, we, we've done a number of things. We have really minimal packaging. With, it's all recyclable. It's just like a recycled bag with an insert. And then we've actually built some wood displays. Some shops put up, which is kind of cool, because then yeah. the, the fins are out, and the customers can actually like, put their hands on the fins. And cool. But, you know, man, it's... it's SurfNVS.com is where you can check it all out. Use promo code PODCAST to save 20% off their Apex Series fins, which are available in any configuration. I have a set of twin keels and a thruster set of Dan Mann's template, which I've swapped out on every single shortboard that I've ridden in the past year. So I've got lots of experience on those, and they are simply my favorite thruster fin that I've probably ever ridden, period. So surfnvs.com, promo code podcast to save 20% off and support this show. And then, of course, Slow Tide Towels. A changing poncho or a luxurious oversized woven beach towel are both great gifts for a surfer, but also their bath towels would be a great option for maybe a mother or yoga towels for anybody are great gifts. And then, of course, their travel towel, which they're now doing this limited run shaper series, is a necessity for any surf trip just because the towels pack into a really tiny square and they're 100% recycled made from a microfiber so they absorb four times their weight in water and in addition to the shapers that I mentioned at the top of the show that they're doing collaborations with this collaboration also extends to towel designs with Hayden shapes pukas dead kooks tnc's glen pang and you can check those all out on slowtide.co The promo code is PODCAST for 10% off, and you'll get free shipping at $75 or more. Slowtide.co, promo code PODCAST. Thank you. I'm super excited to give you the final installment of this series with Dick Metz next week. But after the feedback um, from our first show last week, I think that it's evident that we need to have Dick on the show frequently, or certainly um, at least periodically. Maybe just get like one wild story at a time from him and then insert those once a month or every other month or something. I'll figure it out. But Dick has a lot to say. He's eager to chat and um, the feedback has been really, really great. So it's crazy how influential a role that he's played and how little these stories have actually been circulated. I think part of it is just that it's kind of daunting how much he has to say, and it's kind of difficult to design a package for it all. I mean, a book or a documentary would be probably 
inadequate to get all those stories even. That's why I'm glad just to kind of let him roll, turn on the mics and let him roll. So I'm glad to hear that you guys enjoy hearing from him as well. So more to come from Dick Metz. And then I will be back with him next week, but enjoy the Pipe Masters until then. I'm going to be back with Scott Bass on Spit and Chas Smith on The Grit to discuss that event as it closes. But until then, this is, of course, David Scales for Surf Splendor. Thanking you and reminding you to get back into the ocean, share a couple of waves, and shred on the run.